Well, we're nearing the end of our series on the seven deadly sins. Next week, we're going to conclude the series with Pastor Jill speaking about the sin of lust. Good luck with that, Jill. Today, since we're trying to fit seven sins into six weeks of Lent, we're going to cover two sins, greed and gluttony. So you're going to get two sermons today, but don't worry, I'll keep them each concise. Let's listen to the scripture that guides today's message on greed first. Good morning for the Fogarty family. Our scripture this morning is from Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, and Proverbs 23, verses 1 to 3, and verses 20 to 21. Then Jesus said to his disciples, I assure you that it will be very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's easier for a camel to squeeze through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Well, this is a hard scripture to hear, especially if we happen to be affluent, which I think I would include myself in that category as well as some of us in that room. It's a loud warning signal for Jesus to share such a powerful and strong statement. You know, for centuries, Christians who take uh, Scripture seriously have tried to make this easier to hear, or, or sometimes they tend just to make sure that it's applying to someone else. Since the 15th century, there's been this story told that Jesus' reference here of a camel going through the eye of a needle is in reference to one of the city gates in the wall that surrounds Jerusalem. It was called the Eye of the Needle Gate, and it had been just narrow enough that a camel could get through without the baggage that it usually carries. The purpose for such a gate would be it's easier to defend in times of war. The uh, challenge is, in spite of all the archaeology, all the extensive research, they've never found such a gate. So it seems to be a story that was made up. Another attempt that people make is to try to suggest that uh, what has happened was that Jesus' original words in the Aramaic were confused because the Greek words for camel and rope are very similar, somewhat understood because sometimes rope is made out of camel's hair. And therefore, uh, Jesus, they thought in the original uh, illustration analogy, was saying that that, uh, it's harder for rope to get through the eye of a needle, which might be a little easier to hear. But the trouble with all that kind of work is that it's really missing the point that comes in the context of this passage because clearly the disciples were shocked at Jesus' illustration. It seems that Jesus is trying to exaggerate in a profound way, so it's not really a mistake at all that Jesus is trying to share that that sense of impossibility. So what we hear is exactly what Jesus meant. Matter of fact, we have a reference in the Babylonian Talmud, which predates this story of Jesus, in which an elephant passing through an eye of a needle was referenced. And so a camel would be the largest animal that would be known in the area of Palestine at that time. So Jesus is making the same kind of exaggerated illustration when he refers to that camel going through an eye of a needle. And isn't it really in character with Jesus? You remember one of his other teachings? He talks about us worrying about the log in our own eye versus the speck that might be in someone else's life. 
Jesus uses this exaggerated analogy because he wants to alter the perception of the people of his day that the rich, being rich is a sign of righteousness and being poor is a sign of sinfulness. And if we put today's scripture in its context, we notice something else that's very important. Remember, this teaching we just read follows this experience where Jesus has had this interaction with a rich young man who's come to him asking what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, noticing his garb, which clearly was of fine linens, and he remarks to him that you need to go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. I think it's important to note that Jesus is not being a preacher here as much as he's being a pastor. Because in those days, it was an honor to be given the privilege of following a great rabbi. Jesus was inviting him to come follow him. And instead, the man walks away very sadly. And that's what prompts Jesus to share this impossible analogy of a camel going through the eye of a needle. It's a message that would have shocked his listeners because everybody in Jesus' day thought that wealth and prosperity was a sign of God's favor and blessing. And that's what prompts the disciples' question. If a rich man can't make it to heaven, how do we stand a chance? And Jesus' answer is one I think we all should take a heart, especially as we evaluate the use of our resources. Jesus says, with human beings it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And I think we need to ponder these words. Because we are very much like the people of Jesus' day who idolize the rich. Now we may not think they've got a better chance of getting to heaven than any of us, But don't we admire the big houses, the luxury yachts, the exotic vacation spots? We'd love to have the respect that our society seems to give the rich. They are proof that the American dream is alive and well. Their wealth is a sign of wisdom and brilliance. And as we listen to what they have to say, we want to hang on their every word. And yet, Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Remember, Jesus said these words with empathy. He has empathy for a man that he sees walking away. And he said those words because the world is really deceiving us into believing a lie. Happiness cannot be found in what we possess. It is found in the pursuit of God. And that's the problem with greed. I think it's the most dangerous of the seven deadly sins. Its lure is so powerful, and in an affluent world in which we live in, we get lost in its deception. I mean, we live in a society that's got a whole industry, the advertising industry, whose job it is to convince us that we're only going to be happy if we have more. And boy, do they do a good job of it. I was talking with my daughter Kelsey recently, and she was sharing that she just bought a new car, and she's done well. The car that she was driving, she bought used, had been driving it for about 10 years. She's put 150,000 miles on it. It was starting to have problems, and she's got a growing family, two young boys that are now starting to have friends, and she's got to cart them off to all their activities. So she was in need of a new car, and she's got an accountant as a husband, so I know they can afford it. 
And she was telling me, Dad, you wouldn't believe all these new features this car has. And she was telling me about the, the lane assist. If you get out of lane, it pulls your steering back where it belongs. And it's got that automatic cruise control where you get too close to a car in front of you. It slows you down. She's got the right view mirror camera. So if she turns, makes a right turn, the camera comes on to show her that blind spot. And I could go on and on. And she's saying, Dad, I feel like I've got so much luxury in this car. And it got me thinking about the first time Nancy got into my car about 20 years ago. And she was hunting around for the automatic window button. And I had to explain to her, uh, Nancy, in this car we do things the old-fashioned way. You see that crank down there? And, and you turn it like this. You know. <laughs> but isn't that funny how luxury sometimes becomes a need. Once you have it, you can't imagine going back. I mean, would any of you buy a car without automatic window buttons anymore? Probably not. It would just seem so strange. But that's the challenge of our world. The more we have, the more we want. And whenever we turn on the TV, it's telling us that we need more. We need the latest and greatest. And the problem is that it's a never-ending cycle. It's a thirst that can never be satisfied. But here's the cool thing about this deadly sin. It may be the deadliest of the seven sins, in my opinion at least, but it offers the easiest solution. And Jesus offers it in the story of that rich young man that just preceded our scripture today. He says to him to go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. Jesus' answer is to give. And and it's amazing that this is one sin where even though our hearts are where our treasure is, and sometimes it does take a change of heart to really wake us up, it is possible to change the heart by that concrete and tangible act of just giving, just do it. Now, I learned pretty young about the importance of tithing. In college, I became convinced that as I read my Bible, tithing 10% is what God expects of us. And so I started it then. I've been doing it ever since. But I have to confess that probably I did it more out of obedience than anything else. And now that my kids are financially independent, I have a few more resources. I'm trying to go beyond that tithe, to give to things more freely. And you know, it's pretty fun to give. It's fun to know that your gift, it's just a wonderful thing to make a difference in somebody's life. And it's a beautiful thing to see that you can change a person and transform their circumstances. And it's an incredibly powerful thing. It's empowering to know that when we join together with others, we can literally change the world through that gift of giving. So I encourage you to discover that gift of giving. I believe it's up to us to take Jesus' words seriously. And it may not be your calling to go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor, but if we want to follow Jesus, which is where life is truly found, then we need to learn to give. It's the best way to avoid the sin of greed. Proverbs 23. When you sit down to dine with a ruler... Carefully consider what is in front of you. Place a knife at your throat to to control your appetite. 
don't long for the ruler's delicacies and food misleads. Don't hang out with those who get drunk on wine or those who eat too much meat, because drunks and gluttons will be impoverished. Their stupor will clothe them in rags. We are thankful for the gift of scripture. Amen. Amen. I can't help but ask if gluttony really deserves to be one of the seven deadly sins. I mean, our, our Lord Jesus was called gluttonous and a wine bibber simply because he and his disciples did not fast as much as John the Baptist's disciples did. And think about all the things that Jesus did around a table. There was a whole string of parables that Jesus told that involved parties and feasts, the most famous of which was the prodigal son who came home and a party was thrown. Jesus brought Zacchaeus to faith because he was willing to go to his home and share food with him around table. And because of it, his life was transformed. And what about the Last Supper that we commemorate on a regular basis as Christians? The bread and the cup represent for us such sacred things as we remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave. And, and how many of you were born and raised Methodist? Okay. What we have done without pitch-ins and potlucks? I mean, Really? Faith and food go together. So what's it doing as one of the seven deadly sins of gluttony? If I'm going to rank the seven deadly sins, I'm going to put it number seven. Just me. And the only way it even makes the list is because when I dove in and and looked at what the early desert fathers were trying to say, I realized that gluttony was shorthand for all the sins of the flesh. It's, It's so much more than just about food. And if we focus on the Proverbs passage that um, this is based upon, we realize that it's more about what happens when we hang out with drunkards and riotous eaters. You'll find very little in the scriptures about overeating or overdrinking. As a matter of fact, the Jewish liturgical year revolved around a succession of feasts. Isaiah 55 talks about the Messianic banquet table. And the same imagery is used in the book of Revelation when it talks about heaven will be this wedding feast with the Lamb of God, which represents Jesus. Food is a positive in in the Bible. It's an essential element in many sacred events. But unfortunately, when you look at our American culture, gluttony becomes a sin for various reasons. There's a lot of judgment that comes with it. We have this obsession with the ideal body image. An estimated 45 million Americans go on a diet each year. $33 billion, $33 billion, stop and think about that, is spent on weight loss products every year. If we're honest, the sin of gluttony is most condemned, feared, and shunned of the seven deadly sins in our culture And for most of us, what is repulsive about it is not the sin, but the fat. We have this pressure to make obesity a sin. Elementary school children make much more about the fat kid in class than the bully in class. Studies have shown that an overweight person is at a distinct disadvantage in being hired for a job when compared with those who are not overweight. 
Even though excessive fat can be due for, due for a lot of reasons, some factors that are beyond our control, it's just part of our genetic code, but we ascribe obesity with laziness in our minds or self-control or emotional problems. We've demonized gluttony in ways that we would not think of doing so with the other sins because the effects of this sin are so external. So I would encourage us to get a better handle on our tendency to judge others and ask ourselves how the sin of gluttony might apply to us even if weight is not an issue. Remember, Jesus tells a story that's in the 16th chapter of Luke. He talks about this rich man who's dressed in fine purple. And he's eating away at his table. And right outside his gate sits a man who's a beggar who would be happy just to have the crumbs that fall from the table of this rich man. And yet, when they both die, we discover that Lazarus is received into heaven and embraced by Abraham himself. And the rich man is in Hades and suffering and agony. And take notice that in this story, the rich man doesn't even get named where Lazarus does. Lazarus is remembered. This tells us that gluttony can be more than self-indulgence, but it also can be the sin of being blind to the needs of others in a world where millions go hungry. Gluttony is as much about the overconsumption of the world's resources as it is about the food that we take into our bodies. And this is one of the reasons I believe that it's worthwhile to keep gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins. Gluttony has something to say about our relationship with others and our responsibility for all of God's people in this world. And the other reason I think it's worthwhile keeping this as one of the seven deadly sins is because food has become an obsession in our society. It can sometimes take the place of God. I would suggest that food has this addictive quality To it, that means that we have to hold on and sometimes need the help of God to overcome. I think I'm in agreement with William Raspberry, who makes the case that one of the most detrimental things that ever happened in human history was the discovery of how to refine sugar. And he makes a strong case for that. He believes that before that time, we had to learn to wait. For sweetness, you had to wait until the fruit ripened, or you had to find some way to discover honey. But then, when we discovered how to refine sugar and have it on demand to satisfy that that embedded need for sweetness in our life, then we thought we could have anything on demand. He literally believes that it has led to overeating, drug addiction, and a whole host of other problems. Well, I'm convinced that many of us do battle an addiction to sugar. It's what makes gluttony such a difficult sin to deal with. Oh my gosh, if Nancy bakes a batch of her chocolate chip oatmeal cookies, I lose all self-control. John Cassie, the 4th century monk who helped give birth to the seven, admitted that of all of them, gluttony and lust are illnesses that require the most creative cures. Well, I don't have a cure for gluttony today. I think it's fair to say that there's a reason that it's ended up in the seven deadly sins, which means that it has to be taken seriously. 
And for those of us who are challenged by the sin, I would recommend bringing the same level of spiritual resources as an alcoholic brings to face their addiction. I'd also recommend that Christians rediscover the spiritual discipline of fasting. But what I can say for sure, based on what I read in the early Desert Fathers, they understood this sin as being so much more than about how much food we take into our bodies. It's a call to live a life that sees the needs of others around us, to live simply, and to consume wisely. It also encourages us to never let anything in this world, even food, take the place of God in our lives. But let's first start with replacing the shame and guilt that our society puts on us and on our bodies And make sure we begin as we face this sin with the understanding that we have the unconditional love of God in our lives. That he has made us in God's image no matter what our body looks like. We begin to be empowered in that way. I think the sin and gluttony becomes much easier to deal with. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help in the handling of these sins. They can run deep and sometimes are challenging, but let's not let the world tell us what is and isn't right and righteous. We know that we're loved by you by your grace first. And with that empowerment, then we can face whatever really needs altered and changed in our lives. Empower us to be your people, to take control of our lives, and that we might represent you in all that we do and how we share our resources and also in what we take into our bodies. This we pray through Christ, who is our Lord. Amen.